My name is Eitan Chatayat and welcome to I'm That Podcast, where I get to talk to some pretty incredible people. Some are friends and colleagues, some are clients, and some are people I haven't even met yet. On I'm That, we'll hear from them about who they are, what they do and why, stuff they love or hate, mistakes they've made, victories they've had. They're all known for something, but by the time we're through, the hope is they'll have revealed some things we didn't know about them. Our talk may be deep, profound, funny, who knows really. One thing for sure, it'll be interesting and honest. So if you're up for that, thank you for joining me on I'm That, and here we go. Eve Barlow is a pop culture journalist based in L.A., She grew up in the UK, worked at the forefront of music journalism in London from 2008 to 2014, and was deputy editor of the NME. Since 2014, Eve has been a freelance journalist in America, critiquing pop, profiling artists, and covering film, music, and more for The Guardian, New York Magazine, Elle, Billboard, Playboy, Nylon, and many more publications. She was also a contributing editor at Q Magazine from 2015 until the magazine's closure in 2020. And more recently, Eve has become a more active voice on Jewish identity and fighting anti-Semitism via Twitter and Instagram. You can follow her on Twitter at Eve underscore Barlow and on Instagram at Eve Barlow. One word. Hello. Hi. Hi. Do you, what do you need me to have? Do you need me to have a microphone? Do you need me to have headphones? I just want to say hi first. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. Hey, you're good. I'm good. You know, I'm good. People ask me how I'm doing and I'm not like really, I've not, you know, I'm so in it that I haven't really been able to consider how I'm doing. Do, Do you know what I mean? And also... I think what people don't really realize is, first of all, people don't know who I am. So I don't know know, who you are. People don't know who I am. They don't know anything about me. They don't know what I've been doing with my life. So, and I think for people who do know who I am, they know that I'm someone who's capable of dealing with what I'm currently dealing with. I've been a journalist for over 10 years. I've been a journalist in a really intense crazy area like when you're a music journalist and you run music magazines that are loved and loathed by everyone you are accustomed to being libeled and harassed and you know like receiving receiving death threats has never been um has never has never felt novel to me like it's it's be but obviously Obviously, this, what's going on right now in terms of the attack on the most vulnerable part of our humanity is very different. And it is, um, there is a white heat around the, the fear of what it is implicating. However, I I don't know. I've been I've been in this fight for years, and I'm I'm fine. I'm actually in a way. <laughs> there's two things. I kind of I'm feeling I'm, I'm dealing with a dichotomy of two things. One is just the utter heartbreak that I feel over how dishonest so many people in my life are, or were, so many people who were in my life are, with respect to how dishonest my industry is. 
you know, friends that friends that I've had over the years, people that I've worked with, people that I've written about, you know, just the dishonesty with regards the the double standards they live their lives by you know they're all social justice warriors but they couldn't give a flying fuck when it comes to jews they don't want to listen they don't want to come to a webinar they don't want to be educated they don't trust it and they're not interested it's not important to them anti-semitism lived and died in the holocaust you know that's it um so it's dealing with that part of my life while also dealing with the the beauty of so many Jews coming together through, you know, through a lot of the activism that I'm doing and the people that I have been vocal alongside have been doing for a while now and holding those two things in my hands at the same time is really powerful and helps me constantly feel I mean I feel more focused than I've felt in a long time right now and I I feel like I'm able to to do something not for me for you know for us and for and not just for I do think that we need to concentrate on Jews in this moment because as a community we really need to do a lot to motivate and mobilize each other and and be together as you know amahad as it were however i do also feel that the work that we're doing is part of a bigger societal push against you know radicalization and and post truth and egocentricity and narcissism and just mass deployment of misinformation because ultimately while i hate the canary in the coal mine idiom for jewish people i do think that we are often it has been proven throughout history the first with our backs up against the wall and we tend to be (laughs) the first people who feel the impact of something some kind of new age of sinister whatever it looks like you know what i mean so i feel like this is beyond i i really do feel like it's beyond just us however the just us of it is very important and there's a reason why we as a people have survived for thousands and thousands of years and we really need to invest in that element of it above and beyond everything else she says as she puts chapstick on her lips. You're the chattiest guest I've ever had, and it's only been like three minutes. I'm chatty. Oh, you're chatty. <laughs> you know, typically the way I'd start this is we do a little bit of a get to know you before we're on camera. Mm-hmm. But fuck it. It's already started. It's so started. I'm going to just say hi. It's really nice to meet you. And I don't think people know who you are. And I want to get to know you in the next hour. Great. Let's do it. <laughs> Honey, we're already doing it. Um, so why music? Oh, wow. Well, um, music has always been my religion. It's been my best friend. It's been my, it's, it's been the prism by which I understand the world, how people communicate with each other, community, um, 
there's a, I was completely obsessed with music growing up. I was also obsessed tangentially with pop culture, um, but music would always be the sort of the glue that held it all together. And, you know, I only watched movies that had incredible soundtracks and all of my heroes had some kind of like music adjacency, even if they weren't musicians themselves. My Bibles growing up were music magazines and I didn't really, you know, I was a very academic kid, but I was always plugged into my Discman, my Walkman, whatever it was at the time. And I was really, that was how, whenever I spent time on my own and I was like developing ideas and thoughts and, a vision for the future it was always through the prism of whatever I was listening to and it was just an obsession for me and then when I started to get a bit older and I would go to gigs and I would be standing in in these rooms with you know strangers seeing music come to life live before me played by just people who felt to me to be so um, fearlessly vulnerable. I, I can't describe how much of a kick I got out of that and, and continue, you know, obviously with COVID, I haven't been to, this is the longest time I have not seen live music during my entire adult life. It's, you know, during a regular week in my life, I'm going to, three or four potentially more gigs a week so that's you know that's my bread and butter lifestyle and that's part that's part of what my career has been up until this point but yeah and it never it never gets old for me I I don't I I just feel so galvanized by being in a space where art is being created in front of me and it's not just it's not just live music I really do I really have spent a lifetime living inside records but I just am fascinated by extreme characters and the soap opera of the music world and there's just something I I don't know there's there's something that music provides for me in terms of a comfort or a way in which I can understand my emotions, my thought responses to what's happening around me. It just, I'm not someone who dislikes quiet, but I, I do, I am a very independent, very solitary person. I spend a ton of time on my own and I really have always had this companionship with music. Who are you listening to now? Like you just posted something about Alice, Alice. Wolf Alice. Wolf Alice. Wolf Alice. Uh, yes, well, Wolf Alice put their their third record out today, and they are a band. They're an example of a band that I, um, you know, I've been writing about for years, and they emerged while I was deputy editor of the New Musical Express or the NME. They emerged around twenty thirteen. I want to say 2012, 2013. And I reviewed their first single for the NME and their first EP. 
and there's a really sweet story actually that their drummer always reminds me of where um we were at a house party somewhere in London uh, and I used to you know used to hang out with bands in London all the time because it's a part of the NME lifestyle when you work at the magazine you're pretty much hand in hand with you're all part of the same scene especially at that time it was very indie band orientated and so we were all at this party and in those years I would often you know I, I mean bands starting out and either not being signed or just being signed they have no money at all and I remember I would often be like in taxi cabs with bands sort of dropping them off at the end of a party because um, they couldn't afford to get home and I remember I remember the drummer Joel we were in the taxi cab and he just turned on me and he was like I can't believe you you gave our EP seven out of ten a seven out of ten and I said yeah that's a great that's 70 percent that's a really good score seven out of ten for your first EP so I can't it's at least an eight and a half out of ten and I said okay in the future you're going to remember this conversation because I'm going to say this to you now I love your band and I love your EP. And the reason why I gave you seven out of 10 is because I know that I'm giving you room to grow. And in the future, you're going to get far better reviews than seven out of 10. But in the grand scheme of your whole career, this is your seven out of 10 EP. Wait, and how have they done since then? Incredible. No, I'm I mean, they got, the five star, they got a five star review in The Guardian today. So, you know, there's, uh, yeah, there was, there was room to grow. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm listening to that record a lot actually because it just it just came out today. The power, the power that you have, Eve. Oh, you know, <laughs> no, it's not. You were talking about you were talking about like music and mm -hmm. art and creativity, and I'm a writer. You're a writer, so yeah. if the first question was why music, then the second question is why writing. Yeah, writing is the most writing is both the greatest thing about my life and the absolute bane of my life i either love it or i hate it so much i wish it was something i'd never i'd, I'd never set my sights on um writing for me was one of those things where you know like when you're in school and you <laughs> you have your subjects that you're really like naturally better at and then ones that you're less less good at i always for some i think it's like a glutton for punishment thing or something but i always wanted i always fetishized the subjects that i was less good at because i thought they were i don't know i thought they were like cooler or something so i was really good at science and um history and you know um math basically and then I, I I was horrible at English I was really bad at English I was that I was not a good writer I was not a creative person and I sort of forced myself to be good at it as a challenge and my creative writing when I was younger was horrible <laughs> it was really horrible and I don't know what it was about how I managed to develop that skill but i think i just i think what it was more the thing that led me into writing more was the idea that 
I felt like I always had a lot to say about certain things and I wanted to be able to get my point across and writing for me has always been the most immediate medium for that so you know and and it was really more cultural things that I, I always felt deeply passionate about you know and I really needed people to know what I thought of the latest Britney Spears album or what I thought of the season finale of Buffy the Vampire Slayer or you know I really just needed people to listen to me and maybe it was because I do have an older brother and sister but they weren't living at, um, at home with me at the time because they're much older than me so maybe it was just that kind of like almost only child syndrome of like needing to be able to um have some kind of platform and voice but I was drawn to writing because I knew that it not only could I enthuse at other people but it also helped me and it still to this day helps me work through my thoughts and and you know there's such a and I'm sure that you understand this there's just such an impactful cathartic release that happens when I sit down and even if it takes me fucking 10 hours to to sit down at the and and commit to I'm going to write this piece now I'm going to do it once I actually sit down and get into it it's such a wave of relief to get something down on the page and I really enjoy it but sometimes actually getting to sit down at a keyboard is the biggest nightmare. I will, I will procrastinate, you know, my, my home will never look in better shape than just before I'm on a massive deadline because I will just be doing everything other than writing. <laughs> I find as a writer, I mean, I, don't, I, I write at night. I mean, I've got two small kids and I always used to be a night owl and it's a little bit harder now because I've got to sleep because they get up at, you know, six in the morning. But especially in this last month, I've been with everything that I've been writing as, as a view, it's it's like three or four in the morning when I'm done. But it's a real commitment. And people think, oh, you know, you're a good writer. And and I think a lot of it is is it's the commitment. It's yeah. the commitment to the craft. It's the commitment to yourself, meaning I need to get this out there. Like you're saying, I need to be able to 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 put out exactly what it is that I want to say. And all of the words matter because I'm sure you edit and re-edit and edit and edit until it's just right. And it's also, um, it's really, I find that it's really you with yourself. And it's, it's not like speaking. You know, you can go back to your thought and you can edit it to say, no, that is exactly what I mean after the ninth edit. And I, I, I take great, I love writing, but it's, it's hard. It is hard. And I, I've been really fortunate in that my career, particularly in the past five to six years, since I moved to LA and became a freelance journalist, my career is really orientated around um, really honing in on interview skills and really being um, an astute profiler of, of noteworthy people, whether they're very famous actors or, you know, cutting edge bands or curious, like obscure, curious or interesting artists, you know, and I feel fortunate in that really a lot of the time my experience as a writer has been as a vehicle to tell someone else's story. 
And that's less, um, it, it puts me, it's less of putting myself in a position of having to constantly write about my own thoughts and feelings. And it's more sort of how do I craft this, this person's story that does them justice in a way that I think, um, you know, services them, but also the wider world. Why would they care about that person? And I would be lying if I said that I don't, not necessarily insert myself, but I, you know, through weaving those stories together, I find pieces of me showing up just, I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm the, the person that's had the conversation with that person too. So I've led the um, interrogation as it were, kind of led by my, by my biggest curiosities about that person. And that's, that's probably rooted in the priorities of where my interests lie as well as where I think other people's do. But suffice to say, it's a different kind of challenge when you're writing other people's narratives because I've always been a big proponent of the fact that information is one of our greatest assets and greatest, you know, things of value. And once information is out there in the world, you cannot retract it. You can't take it back. So even if you put something out and it's false and it gets denied and um, there's a statement that comes out that counteracts it, there are so many people who never forget that that piece of information existed at one point and it will sway them and give them a prejudice either which way. So a lot of the concern that I have and the stress that I have when I'm writing those stories is more kind of a protective stress. I want to get a story out there that's compelling, but I don't want to, I don't want to ruin someone's life <laughs> or, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to, I, I need to be very careful with how I present information to people and you know not to go off on a tangent about oh, please go off on a tangent <laughs> the thing that brought us both here but I think as someone who has been so careful about how they tell other people's stories and really build such a vault of trust with the personalities that I've encountered over the years and really you know, and not to pat myself on the back, I have been celebrated as a writer who can be trusted with someone's story. I think that's why I really struggle with how much I feel I'm being expelled and pushed out from the work that I do and the community of people that I built through doing that work. Because what we're seeing right now and the reason we came to know each other is because our story is being completely bastardized and no one seems to care about that at all. And no one is being careful with their words or how they, how Wait. they portray us. Let's talk about that. I don't mm -hmm. want to talk about it too much because my goal is to get to know you. And I don't think that this whole shitstorm is everything that you are. And I want to be very, very conscious of that as I speak to you, because I want to get to know you. But I think sure. let's let's give some context to what happened. Let's talk about it a little bit. 
and let's fucking get back to you. I mean, what happened? What, it's not really so much what happened to me as what happened to us as a people. But, you know, I guess we're, we're living in an age again where anti-Semitism ha- is not rising, it's risen, and it has become completely permissible to be wildly, openly, unapologetically, without consequence, a Jew hater, um, under the guise of this progressive idea of anti-Zionism, which, you know, as we know, has historic ties to the Soviet Union and um, and leftist politics, extreme radical leftist politics. And I've been in the trenches fighting. I mean, I fought with a bunch of British Jews in... Uh, the the few years prior to this when Jeremy Corbyn became the leader of the Labour Party and was um, and was standing for election to become prime minister in the UK and so I was doing this work pretty you know I was doing this work publicly and um, loudly for years around that specific case but during that time you know, we were kind of, as British Jews, we were sort of screaming into the void and we were shaking. And I was I was living here in LA during all of that time. So it was kind of a weird juxtaposition between my online life of just total fear and constant annihilation and then being in America and feeling geographically quite divorced from what was going on. Whereas now I feel very much in the thick of where everything is happening. Um, but I, I think the, you know, the thing that was really frustrating for us as British Jews is that we were screaming into the void, specifically at Americans with regards this, this exact same cult of Corbyn is happening in America and all of your championed social justice, progressive politicians are all behind Jeremy Corbyn. So what does that tell you? Um, The same shit is going on in this backyard here and we need to address it. And it was an inconvenient, I mean, it continues to just be an inconvenient truth for American Jews. And yes, some American Jews are now waking up to this and and they're scared, but... You know, I just I'm I'm hoping that people are going to be as prepared to get their hands dirty and muck in and not be and be shamelessly proud about who they are and what they are advocating for. So proud of who they are. Yeah. And I think that that's so. I mean, look, we've never really spoken before, um, but I, I made a film a while back called I'm That Jew. And this was around six or seven years ago. I have no idea if you've seen it. I have. Oh, you have. Okay. I saw it a few years ago. Okay. And that's, yeah. and that at a time was, um, I think I said what a lot of people wanted to say, to say something positive about, hey, you know, I'm Jewish, but they were afraid to mm-hmm. because it's scary out there. And so I put out that film and I started it by saying, my name is Eitan Shatayat and I'm that Jew. And I put it out there and it just like, whoosh, it just went viral. But it came from a source of pride. It wasn't a statement against anti-Semitism. It was a statement to my Jewish brothers and my Jewish sisters. And the word that you just used now, which I think is so important, 
is that you're proud. Mm-hmm. How do you think we can get that spirit within the Jewish community alive again to let them feel not just they're proud, you know, because they are proud, but like externally to come out and say it, to say, I'm proud of who I am, to get rid of this silence. How do you think that's possible? Is that possible? Hmm. Yeah, I am. I have this theory that, and I think it's a theory that a lot of us share that has seeming to prove itself more and more correct as the the days and weeks flow in, which is that the louder the hate of us is, the more rooted in our identity we become. And it seems to be, and I don't know, you know, I don't know if I, I'm, I'm pretty atheist. I don't know if I believe in a God or anything like that. But it seems to be that the relationship between the fact that anti-Semitism is the oldest form of hatred in the world and that Jews are one of the oldest people hoops in the world, I think these two things are intertwined with one another. And I think the constant um, chameleon-like redesign of Jew hatred through every generation for some reason exists to remind us who we are and to bring us closer together again and to make us proud again. And I I hate to suggest that it's because of the expulsion and the abuse that um, that we're receiving that, that that is going to instill, make people's hearts more enriched and render them, render their desire to come home in themselves stronger but that does seem to be the message that i'm receiving from so many people in my in my dms or like in conversations that i'm having is you know i i'm just disgusted by the way people are treating me because i'm a jew and it only makes me want to be more jewish (laughs) it's and i guess it makes sense in a psychological point of view that you you know we are we live in this identity politic driven world, which I am actually not that enamored by. And, you know, we're if you're certain things, you're allowed to celebrate those things. And there's supposed to be things by which you define your entire being. Again, I, I'm not sure about that. I prefer individuality over being part of several groupings of, you know, I, I'd rather be an individual in all of my multitudes than, you know, a Libra or, um, <laughs> I mean, I'm being facetious, but. Um, are, you a, are you a Libra? I am a Libra. I mean, whatever that means. But you know what I'm saying? It's, these, it's this kind of um, obsession with, you know, your, your, your gender presentation, your sexuality, the color of your skin pronouns nationality star signs whatever it's we we before our names now we put or or on our email signatures we put so many different identity symbols and i'm not sure why we're so attached to grouping ourselves in these ways or siloing ourselves and 
you know, therefore swallowing whole one way to be because we're that thing. You know, I, I don't define myself by my Judaism either. I am all of these things and I'm also Jewish. I've noticed the weaponizing, and we talk about this a lot in our community, the weaponizing of Judaism by people who are desperate to divorce themselves from it. So the language of, well, as a Jew, I don't think this is anti-Semitic, you know, which is interesting because to me, I always think to myself, hmm, well, you never use, you know, as a Jew, I'm going to the theater tonight to watch blah, blah. Or as a Jew, I, you know, I, I played soccer this morning. It's as if to say that you're not Jewish in everything else that you're doing in your life, but you will deploy your Judaism to make sure that everyone knows that it's okay. I, I'm assimilating in this fashion and you can continue hating other people in my tribe because they don't seem to want to assimilate and shed themselves of certain things the way that I do. It's, well, it's curious. Yeah, well, it's certainly a, a fear to me. You've given me the perfect segue and I'm going to fuck up your shit right now and ask you the question, which is the question that I always ask on this show, which is to complete a sentence. <laughs> and the question is very simply, Eve Barlow, I'm that. I've been thinking about this a lot. And I think I'm that interrupter. People have said that I am disruptive or an interrupter and it's actually in my Twitter bio I think it says the interrupter because there was one time when I was on a Grammy Awards red carpet and someone actually came up to me and said oh it's the interrupter but it's something that people have commented throughout my career and also just my life is that I'm I've never been one to just fall in line wherever the conversation is. And I think that's what I'm seeing with myself in the most extreme fashion right now, the, the most extreme iteration of this. You know, I've always sort of interrupted the trendy status quo or inserted a voice into something that maybe was not yet voiced or was... Uh, not in line with what people had anticipated. I think I I have this this thing where I'm constantly surprising people by what comes out of my mouth, and and a lot of the reaction I get is very negative because people seem to think that they have, you know, by process of putting me in certain envelopes or in certain corners or whatever they they think they understand what I'm about or what I would advocate for or what what opinion I would have or what music I would have or what, you know, what I'm going to say about a film that's come out or whatever. And I've always had this, this desire and to be completely integrity-driven and honest and not be afraid to, to speak the truth of what I think. And... I do believe more and more in the way that we're having discussions now, especially on social media and just in our very polarized society that we live in, that speaking honestly without fear 
has become, I mean, I was going to say taboo, but it's not really welcomed unless you're just joining in on the chorus that everyone on your side of the polarised playing field is already singing. And I, I've just never really been interested in that. I've always been interested in interrupting thought, interrupting conversation. And... You know Jordan Peterson. Yeah. I don't know what your opinions are of him. I actually quite like him. I've read one of his books. But I recently saw a clip of him when he was talking and he said something, and I think I brought it up with, with Rose McGowan um, in, in, in the interview I had with her. I believe it was her. And he said, you want to have an exciting life? Tell the truth. Boy, is that going to be an exciting life for you? And I believe in that. There are parallels between you and me, but you're, you're really in the hot spot right now. I think that it does require, it shouldn't, but it does require bravery in this world that we're living in right now to be able to speak your truth because life is not black and white. You know, you can dislike Trump and you can dislike the other guy, but it doesn't mean that you have to dislike everything about Trump and it doesn't mean that you have to dislike everything about Biden. You know, so I, I find life in the gray. And unfortunately, I feel that that you you need to be brave now to say that. You need to be able to say, well, yeah, I don't like him, but credit where credit is due. You know, that's a good point. Or she doesn't speak for me, but with this specific thing about what she's saying, I mean, I'm sure that you and I have tons of differences in our ideologies and, and maybe values or, you know, like, you know, we're different people, but there yeah. is a common ground, but people are not able to speak about that even. That I might have something in common with them, but I'll just go with the crowd and say that this person sucks. And it's depressing. So my question to you is coming out of that, do you get off on being an interrupter? I mean, does that kind of excite you to be that person who is going to tell your truth? Because personally, I can tell you that my integrity is everything to me. And I do get off on being that person in the room who's going to say the thing that no one wants to say. Because yeah. I think it's the right thing to do. And I want to ask you the same question. I think the way that I would answer that question and actually, just to go off your point, because it reminds what you just said reminds me of something I tweeted last night. I, I said, you know, it's a problem when when your echo chamber um, demands that you care more about the person who is making the statement than you do the statement itself. The content of the statement. Yeah, I, I saw that. Yeah. But I fundamentally... You know, I don't know if the thing is, is that I get off on disrupting. I think, and I've been explaining this to people recently, I feel free. Yeah. I really feel free. I feel like I can say whatever I want because here's what I think about cancel culture. I think cancel culture is absolutely real. And I think it's very convenient to not believe in cancel culture until you've been canceled. And I also think the notion of cancel culture not being real is the convenient lie that people who are canceling people tell themselves so that they can remain morally pure. Because, you know, it's like the Amish who shun people when they don't when they don't regard Amish law but they don't actually believe in shunning either because that would make them morally repugnant people. And 
but I will say something else as someone who I guess you could consider has been cancelled. I understand the other side of the coin where people say that cancel culture is a load of bollocks because the result of me being cancelled is that I am now completely at liberty to say what I want. You know, I don't have the fear of, oh my God, if I actually spoke my mind on this thing, then all the people I hang out with and the and the editors I work for and, you know, the, the echo chamber that I survive in is going to turn on me. And I meet people, I ran into an incredible singer-songwriter and independent artist in the street the other day. And she saw me, it was actually the day the morning after um, Seth Rogen tweeted a fart emoji at me and I was, you know. Explain that for people that don't know, try and try and explain it quickly so that we, by the way, something that you and I are going to try and do is we're going to try and get Seth Rogen and Sarah Silverman in a conversation, the four of us on camera. Oh yeah. yeah. We're going to have a nice, a nice civil conversation. We're going to get this to them and we're going to have a civil conversation for Jewish people with different backgrounds. And we're going to talk and have a civil conversation. Um, but yes, go ahead. What happened with, uh, yeah. What happened with, I wrote this article for tablet where I named the social media program, which is the phenomenon that we have experienced as Jewish people online trying to counteract the one-sided narrative and propaganda that existed around the Israel-Gaza conflict and the Israel-Hamas conflict in the past uh, month. And the subsequent expulsion of Jewish people from online spaces who were trying to combat that narrative, I coined this phrase the social media program i wrote an article about tablet and for tablet about it and i mentioned that part of my experience was the pelting of thousands of tweets a day of my hate name eve fartlow that was an uh, that was part of a wider campaign of dehumanizing me of trying to bully me off the internet and get me to stop to, to shut the hell up basically and the article went out, it proved, my point was proven by the fact that everyone who had the tendency to tweet you fart low at me started doing it even more en masse. I was trending in America and, or you fart low was trending in America and Seth Rogen responded to my tablet article with a fart emoji. That was his contribution to the conversation. And he by virtue of having 9 million followers, escalated the hate to such an extent that the trend topic actually went to number two in the country nationwide. Eve Fartlow was the number two trend in America. So that happened. And in that regard, talking about cancel culture and feeling liberated, I guess, is that, you know, that happens and I see, and Seth may may or may not agree with this, but I think his response to me is one that's rooted in fear. Whereas my capacity to write that tablet piece is is not, you know, people people will say to me all the time, um, it's so brave what you're doing. And in a way I feel I feel like um I feel like I 
a, a bit cheap or something because I don't think it's brave for me to feel so for, for me to feel so free in myself to be able to do this you know it's not well I'm not afraid before I I'm not afraid before I say something I'm not afraid before I tweet and I remember what I was going to say actually the reason why I got to Seth is because I ran into this friend who's a fierce artist singer songwriter has always operated quite independently and she ran into me the morning after the the fart emoji and she gave me a big hug and was expressing oh my god you know I was went on twitter last night and I just thought is Eve okay and I and I was like I was I was fine are you okay is you know is it was it more that it was mirroring it was mirroring a fear in you and she said, yeah, that's my biggest fear. Hmm. My biggest fear is that that would happen to me, that I would, that's what we're all afraid of. We're all afraid of saying something that's real and authentic and true to us. And then having the experience that you had. So here you are, you're someone who doesn't consider themselves brave for being who they are. Now, not everyone is like that. Not everyone has that conviction in themselves. Not everyone mm-hmm. has that confidence. I'm like that. I say what I feel, you know, so I, I can relate to what you're saying. But to so many people who, and it's interesting, and I, I brought this up, we were on a call yesterday, I won't get into it, but but I have on, on Twitter is a certain way where, you know, it's short, you say something punchy, people respond. Facebook is a little different because when people communicate on Facebook, then you can really have dialogues. People write a lot. And, and I have a Facebook page with, with, with a bit of a following and, and, they, and they talk and they communicate. And something that is coming up a lot, a lot from thousands of people, because there's thousands of people on the page, is what do I say? What, what can I do with the silence? What can I do with the silence from the people who are not Jewish? What can I do about the silence from my friends? And as someone who is just not as, you know, Eve Barlow, the, you know, the Eve Barlow, let's drop that shit for a second. Just, just Eve. Mm. Eve, the person who grew up in, 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 in Glasgow, who, who, who has lived her life, who loves music, who is the writer, who all these amazing things in your life, these little things added up to make you the person that you are right now, that allows you to do these things. What would you say to people who don't have that capability and who are looking for, not like a leader, because I don't think that you're a leader. I, I just think that you're a human being who, who's just speaking her truth and you're surrounded by a bunch of fuckers that, that don't have <laughs> any guts. And, and honestly, I think three quarters of them are bots on Twitter. But these people that, that are communicating with each other on, in my community who actually live in the real world and are saying very real things, they're looking for... Well, how do you do it? I, I say you speak your truth and you, and you tell people how you feel, but that's me. What would you say to, to someone who's not able to just express themselves the way you do and click send? I say that it's a process, right? You don't just immediately launch yourself off the cliff. Some people do. I probably do sometimes. But there are stages and you don't need to go all all guns blazing immediately. You can keep it small. You can do something. And I think keeping it small and manageable 
is the best approach if you're really afraid to kind of peel back the layers of fear and show yourself that you can you can take baby steps and you can you know you can instill some boldness in yourself by doing doing it piecemeal doing it little by little you know wearing something that tells people that you're jewish and then you know having maybe casual conversations about what that means to you or what or why you have you know for people who are big public figure personality types that's been my advice to them wear a star of david just wear a star of david you know you don't need to say anything you don't need to talk about your jewishness you don't need to talk about israel but show people you're jewish and you know that's what that's one step that you can take another step is you know maybe you're not ready to have a public conversation on a public platform try one or two private conversations maybe call a friend who and express if if it if this feels authentic to you and you do have a friend that you know it's it's leaving a bad taste in your mouth or it's niggling away at you why haven't i heard from this person this person professes to care about me and they can see that i'm a disaffected by things that are going on right now or or you know maybe or maybe they can't see it but I feel disappointed call that person and it doesn't need to be attacking you can just say you know I don't know if you're aware of this but there's something going on right now and I'm just afraid and I wanted to express my fear and I wanted to make you aware of what's going on because you know I value you as a human and I hope that you value my humanity and can we talk about this and maybe have a conversation in a private space and maybe the way that the conversation goes surprises you and it gives you the confidence to have more conversations and maybe more public conversations but i do think it's about figuring out how to use your voice in a way that is as you know risk averse and cautious and safe for you because we can't all operate on the level that someone like you or someone like me even operate you know i and and i go back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation i've i have a decade plus experience of saying things that upset people and not related to my foundational deep core of my identity and the thing that could ultimately and historically has proven to, to get people like me killed you know <laughs> i i've been pissing people off by you know pissing harry styles fans off by saying that one direction sucks and and getting millions of one direction troll bots attack me online you know things that are less attached to my fundamental ability to survive and exist so I am more versed in what it feels like to be um, swarmed by hateful locusts and drowned out by online noise or becoming emblematic of something and, and dehumanized to a point of that they don't see me as a person, they see me as an idea that they're trying to resist and therefore attack. Most people, don't understand what that experience is and they they don't they've never they've never had to to deal with that and that was never an adjustment for me i i just 
you know, it used to amuse me. It wasn't, it wasn't something, and I did, I actually did used to get off on that kind of reaction that I really enjoyed pissing people off like that. I wouldn't say that I enjoy the reaction I get now in terms of the anti-Semitism, because I also understand that when they're attacking me again, it's they're, they're attacking the idea of me and I see how that hurts our community because they also, you know, every Jew, who wants to say the things that I'm saying feels attacked when they see what happens, when they see the E Fartlow trend on Twitter, it feels, and I think Lee Kern is somebody that tweeted to this effect, you know, when, when Eve's being attacked online right now, it's an attack on all Jews. It's not just, you know, it's not just Eve. And that's, it's totally not about me. And that's why I don't want to keep making it about me because it's about us. Yes, it's not about you. And I, I think that what you, you represent something right now. I tweeted something today, which was um, never again doesn't just mean the Holocaust. It means never ever being silent again. And your voice right now, uh, and Lee, who I love, and, 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 and quite a few other people, we need to speak. And whether it's by wearing, like you said, whether it's wearing a Star of David or having a conversation, I mean, I can tell you that that I had a very big problem with one of my best friends in the world who was silent publicly. And so I called him and I told him how I felt and um, and I got through. And I think that it takes, I mean, to, to people who are listening, who are also you know wondering how to do it, in, in addition to what you're saying, I think that it takes incredible strength to show vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And and you come across as this hard, tough, fucking ten years of this shit with 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 One Direction and all these other examples. I'm sure, <laughs> but you know what, Eve? It's not easy, and mm-hmm. and I can imagine what it's like sitting at home alone, and and being bombarded. And it, that's why it's so important for me to to tell you that also. And I know that people say this to you, I know that they do, but you're not alone. And Lee isn't alone, and I'm not alone, and and the Jewish people in Israel are not alone, and those people who might hate the many definitions of Judaism, even as they're Jewish, they're not alone either. And I think that that to, to anyone listening right now, what you just said is is wonderful in that you're saying do it do it your way, but do it. And I think that that's really important because. We shouldn't be silent ever again because we think that there will be a Holocaust one day. We shouldn't be silent ever again because no one should be silent about what they feel. And that goes for someone who is Black, and that goes for someone who is Christian and Muslim. And I just put out a tweet today, which I think will get me in trouble, which was Black lives don't matter, white lives don't matter, Asian lives don't matter. Muslim lives don't matter, Buddhist lives don't matter, Sikh lives don't matter, Hindu lives don't matter, if Jewish lives don't matter. Mm-hmm. That'll probably get me in trouble, but you know what? They're not silent. No one should be silent when they are being attacked. I want to ask you a couple of other questions. What do you really, really suck at? Like, what are you terrible at? <laughs> uh, oh, goodness me. What am I terrible at? Um... Clearly nothing. <laughs> no, no, I'm terrible at a lot of things. And I'm just, I, I'm struggling to think of one that's a good example that I can use. Um, shutting up? Yeah, I'm not good at shutting up. I'm I'm bad at saying no. 
to things. Hmm. Um, what do you mean? I'm, I, I tend to overwhelm myself with a lot because I'm not good. I'm terrible at like creating boundaries, I guess, is the modern way of saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm terrible I'm terrible at relaxing. I'm really bad at relaxing. I need to be better at relaxing. You seem very relaxed though. Yeah, but I mean that I'm terrible at having a day off. Like I can't do a day off. I, I'm really bad at just sitting down on the couch and putting a film on and actually committing to relaxation time. Like I'll get a massage in a year from now, maybe, and I'll probably cancel it. Well, you when know? Was, when um, was the last time you did you did that? Sit on the couch and watch a movie and relax. I can't remember. Friendly suggestion. Maybe after this interview, you switch off your phone and you put on a fucking movie and you grab a drink and you order some Chinese and you say, fuck the yeah. world. Yeah, I'm bad at indulging in relaxation. That's what I'm bad at. And what are you really good at besides writing about music? And being an interrupter, what are you really good at? I think I'm good at being a friend to people I really care about. You know, I'm good at showing up for people. Even if it's like 14 million people, that's a good answer. Another question. You're gay? I'm bi, yeah. Are you seeing anyone? Not at the moment. Do you get out much? I mean, I usually do. In the pandemic, that's been difficult. <laughs> How is that but like? Yeah, I do. I, I spend, I do socialize a lot actually, and I get out, I get out most days of the week. Yeah. LA is terrible for dating people, by the way. LA really? is a, yeah, it's just a cesspit of um, networking and narcissism. And what, what, what can I get out of this as opposed to just, you know, meeting, meeting like minded people for the sake of doing that? How, how, I'm married, two kids, happily married. When I was living in New York, there was, you know, I would, I would date. I went on J-Date, but J-Date was kind of like, you could still get to know people. And then today, when I hear stories about most of my friends who are single or divorced, you know, because my, my age, what, what's it like dating? I mean, is it like the, is it Tinder? Is it the whole Tinder thing? Like, yeah, I, hate all, I, I don't do any of that. I have flirted with it over the years, just in moments of, you know, oh, I guess I should do this thing because it's what everyone is doing. So I've tried, I've been on all of the apps. The problem with the apps is that you have to sit down on your couch, put on a movie and then have your phone in your hand and you know, so I, I don't really respond well to looking at a, a profile picture on a screen and swiping right or left. There's something I understand, you know, we all, we all have different sort of um, methods of attraction to people. And some people are very instinctive about that kind of. Really? Being driven. Well, I, it does. It's uh, thank you. It sounds awful to me too, but it's it's the way that can we a lot judge? of people socialized to date. So I don't. That's not the way that it works for me. The way that it works for me is that I I meet someone in an organic and casual social environment, and and I have a conversation, and you know, and that's it. But I don't. I'm not in terms of the active pursuit of dating. I am really 
like I would say <laughs> laissez-faire about that to the point of extremism like I just I'm not I'm not an active online app pursuit of a romantic partner you inspire people who who's inspired you you know, it's funny, because if you'd asked me that question a year ago, I would have been able to reel you off a lot of, I guess, you know, like music heroes or bands who inspire me. And I, I feel very different about this right now, because a lot of, and I don't mean to sound browbeaten or, you know, like get the violins out, but a lot of those people have really disappointed me because I see so much hypocrisy and I I see that the world that I used to inhabit is very much closed its doors on or at me or towards me I'm really inspired by at the moment I would say that I'm most inspired by our <laughs> our peoplehood and our story I draw enormous inspiration from the story of Jewish resilience and just other people like me online or in this space or you know people like Barry Weiss inspire me people like Ayan Hirsi Ali inspire me like in individuals who are not afraid to 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 speak up about things that are untrendy or you know unsexy or uncool like that's that's cool to me what's cool to me is being being away from the pack being able to to stand out and say and call bullshit on on noise, but to stand away from the mob and do it with your head held high, and and not because you're trying to be a freak show, but because because you have something important to say and you're not scared to say it. So, and I think that that's also in many ways the story of our peoplehood. And I would say if I'm most inspired by something, it's that right now. And I'm inspired by the work of my my best friend, Ben, who I do a lot of the Ben, ben M. Freeman, who put out his first book this year. I've just, um, I've just been, you know, messaging him. I didn't know that he was a friend of yours. We grew up together. People don't know this. People don't know this. That Ben and I have known each other since we were three. We've been best friends for over 30 years. And we're two Jews from Glasgow, from a dying community. I have to. There has to be something to be said about that. I don't know what, what it is, but, you know, we grew up in this tiny little community in Glasgow. And and we've been doing a lot of this work side by side for years. And he inspires me every single day of my life I mean he's the most kind-hearted funny handsome smart just wonderful person and I and I never I'm never alone because Ben's always been by my side Uh and you know he's talking about real inspiration I mean does it get any realer than your best friend that you've known your whole life and what they've achieved and what you've achieved together we've always just championed each other we've been each other's biggest cheerleaders and you know we're just normal ass we're really honestly just two normal people from Glasgow Scotland who grew up in the suburbs and you know made a bit of noise about something you know you you seem completely and I say this in a good way (laughs) it sounds wrong but you seem completely normal to me I mean it's not like uh exactly it's like you you but you see well, first of all, 
I would love to meet Ben and talk to him. So I hope that you can introduce us because um, I've been following him and I love what, what he has to say as well. But but it also warms my heart to know that um, that you guys are friends and I didn't even know. The thing is when, when you are out there uh, and you have all these followers and everything, people forget that you're real, you know? You're, you're, you know, it really, and you meet celebrities and you interview them. And I think that you're used to that, but not a lot of people are and I think that this it's 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 great to feel that. What does something that even Ben doesn't know about you? What doesn't Ben know about me? Um, What's something that even Ben doesn't know about you? Hmm. That's a really good question. Hmm. And I'm not going to edit the silence out of this. Because I think that, I think thinking and taking your time is something that's important as well. It's not an easy question. It really isn't an easy question because I share so much of myself. I've never been afraid to obviously overshare a lot of the time. So thinking deeply on what people don't know about me, I guess it's the... I am afraid, you know, and I don't talk about that, I don't think, because I worry that people don't want to hear that. And I'm afraid about big things that we don't understand. I'm afraid about what all of the tension means right now. I'm afraid of the pattern of past behavior and how it informs future behavior. I'm afraid of the things that, you know, the nightmare scenario that we're afraid of in terms of is the next Holocaust on the horizon? I have that fear, but I have all the other fears. I have fears that other people have. I'm afraid that, you know, I, I'm afraid about when or when or if I'm going to see my my parents again, you know, I I have I live with those fears. I live with fears about whether or not I'm going to spend the rest of my life alone. I live with fears about how I'm going to acquire the type of life that I desire, and you know whether or not I'm a I'm ever going to be a complete article, which of course none of us ever are, but we live in that fear all the time. Am I the best version of myself? Am I a good person? I think that that's stuff I don't vocalize because doing the kind of work that we do, all that happens to us all the time is just constant attack. And you never want to leave low-hanging fruit out there, but you also want to you also want to make sure that you have you give enough space for all of the people who are telling you how afraid they are all the time and how can you give them that space if you're also sharing the minutia of things that have nothing to do with this fight that are also just scary it's it's scary to to be to be a grow you know i don't like the word adult because i've, I've always just felt I have my fair share of Peter Pan syndrome, but I am, you know, being a grown-up person in the world and being responsible for yourself doesn't mean that you don't have those childlike fears of what am I, 
who am I going to be and what am I going to do with my life? And are my, I, the reality of knowing that your family isn't always going to be here, but that they are here now. And what are you going to, and are you using that time well enough? And, you know, those are the types of things that keep me awake at night, not the, you know, the Nazis standing at the end of my, (laughs) at the end of my bed, ready to take me away. (laughs) As I said before, I think it takes strength to show vulnerability. If you could get one of these haters face-to-face in a room like this and have a civil conversation and you had a question that you could ask them, what do you think it would be? Do you condemn Hamas? <laughs> no. Um, so what the answer to that would be? Um, it would be, it would be no. Do you condemn this and this and this and this and this? I would ask them if they understand that their experience of humanity isn't the same as mine, and what that means, and whether we can celebrate that that we can celebrate the fact that the mechanics of our bodies are more or less majority the same, you know, and I'm talking about, yes, my heart pumps blood through my veins and keeps me alive, but it is also the center of my emotional intelligence and my capacity to feel. And if we both have that intact and that's true, then that's a great place to start from. And the world treating us in different ways and this perception of how we come at things through the lens of victimhood these days, seemingly obsessionally, let's just get rid of that. And let's not have a conversation that's driven by our identities. Let's not have a conversation that's driven by your pronouns and my pronouns and my sexuality and your sexuality and the color of my skin and the color of your skin and ethno religion and indigenous indigenous rights and all the rest of it. Let's get rid of all of that. And let's just talk about what we are discussing. Where, where did you come from? Where were you born? What's your earliest memory? What were the things that instilled passion in you? as a child, you know, what's the record that changed your life? I don't know. What's, what was the place on your bucket list that you got to go to? Was it any good? Do you want to go back? I want to be able to rehumanize us and stop this insanity of preluding every conversation with, well, this is my identity. So this is how I understand you in relation to me and the world around us. Let's accept that we have different experiences based on our identity and talk about what we have in common. That's, I think that's how I would try to approach it because, you know, nobody's denying that we all have different stories, but we are the same species and we do have fundamental reactions and understandings of things that should also make our stories combine with each other somehow. Does that make sense? Total. I could talk to you for hours, but um, 
you know. Spitfire, I'm terrible at this. I'm terrible. I'm a terrible interviewer, by the way. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm completely winging it. But um, I thought Spitfire, it could be fun. So I'm going to just like ask you this or that, and you answer however you want to answer, okay? It's not as <laughs> you're making this face like you're getting ready for some. It's not that great, you know, what I'm no, about. I'm getting ready. Okay. I, I'm ready for this. You're ready. Okay, good. Because it's going to be a complete anti climax. It usually is with everyone I've ever done this with. Pop or rock? Pop. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Snow or sand? Snow. Planes or boats? Planes. Liam or Noel? Oh, Liam. Good girl. Dawn or dusk? Dawn. Social media or Netflix? Social media. Jewish men or Jewish women? <laughs> I'm bi. <laughs> I did, well, nothing uh, Jewish, women. Jewish women. Jewish women rock. A Google or Apple? Apple. Twitter or Instagram? Instagram. Pasta or salad? Salad. Wife beater or sweater? Wife beater. See, I knew that it's like that face you made that no one can see. It's just like, what the fuck is this? It's because I suck at Spitfire. I have to say a couple of things, even though this is your interview. One <laughs> is, um, one is um, I told you I'm, I'm terrible at this. For all the hate that you're getting, I, I, I think the, the vast majority... I don't know about vast majority, but a lot of them are bots. A lot of them are just like, it, it's, it's, they're not real. But I want to tell you that for all those haters, if it's not a bot, they should be a bot. Okay, they should mm. be. That's what I wanted to say to you. The second thing is you talked about doors closing in your life and disappointment. But I'd like to tell you, not as a Jew, not as, a, as an ally, not as anything other than a person who sees a woman in front of me that I actually genuinely and sincerely like, and I hope that we can become friends. I would like to tell you that doors close, but my door opens to you. My family's door is open to you. My community's door, and I don't mean social media, is open to you. And I hug you and I embrace you. And you are not alone, Eve. We'll get through this and you'll get through this. And it's okay to be feeling a little scared but you're a wonderful human being and my door is open to you. And, Thank you. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I, I'm sure I speak for, for, for many people that they've managed to get through this <laughs> interview. <laughs> um, that uh, that you're, you're just a great person and, and more power to you, not for everything that you're doing, but for just being the person that you are in your personal life. And I hope Thanks. that you take a break and sit on that sofa and watch some TV. And I have one last question, which is a complete non sequitur, because I probably should have ended with that. But I can't believe I didn't ask it, but you, you brought it up. Record that changed your life. Last question. The record that changed my life was, there were a few, obviously. The first one- that You can say a few, mind, you can say a few. The first one that comes to mind is, what's the story, Morning Glory by Oasis. Um, it sums up the era that I grew up in it's the biggest Britpop record of the 90s. Um, and it just takes me, I can still live in that record now and feel very much part of the world now. I mean, it's so, it's such a, it's such a full throttled, full throated, attitudinal, 
rock album that it, you can listen to it for the rest of time and feel 10 feet tall when you're walking down the street and it's blaring in your ears but it also does just envelop me in a comfort about the, t- the time that I grew up in and it was a time when people were completely unafraid to be who they were you know and I I want to get back to that I want I want to have those kinds of characters around me people that you know you asked me Liam or Noel and I've had the pleasure of spending time with both of those men and you know they're as annoying as they are incredible and they will piss you off as much as they will deeply inspire you but it doesn't matter how many things they say that might offend me I have such great respect for people who are that unafraid and I know whatever they're white cis straight men and we can have you know whatever it doesn't matter to me what matters to me is their refusal to be defined by the circumstances in which they grew up the means they came from and their utter belief in themselves whether it's tied up in ego or not that they could make an impact and they made such an enormous impact that I can't help but forever be inspired by Liam and Noel and that and that record and that story and hope that in generations to come there will there will be the capacity for characters like that to exist again because it's so important that was one record you want to end it on that yeah I can't talk about anything else once I've talked about what's the story. Yeah, I mean, it really is. It really is hard to talk. Eve, I'm not going to edit one second of this. I'm not going to edit it. This is this is it. And 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 fuck everyone if they can't sit through it. They should. Eve Barlow, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's it. Thanks for listening to I'm That Podcast. Go ahead and subscribe to the show on iTunes. And if you'd like, leave a rating and review. Tune in for the next episode and see you soon.